Hello, this is Laura Harris-Hales, and I'm here today with Corey Crawford to talk about historical criticism of the Hebrew Bible. Dr. Crawford teaches classics and world religions at Ohio University in Athens, Ohio. In 2009, he received a PhD from Harvard University in Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations. He specialized in Hebrew Bible, ancient Near Eastern iconography and archaeology, and religion, material culture, and rituals. Among his many publications is a chapter in the book, Standing Apart, Mormon Historical Consciousness and the Concept of Apostasy, entitled Competing Histories in the Hebrew Bible and in the Latter-day Saint Tradition. Today we will be discussing with him the fascinating and complicated story of the origin of the Book of Genesis. Welcome to LDS Perspectives Podcast, where we interview amazing LDS scholars about Mormon history, doctrine, and culture. Welcome, Corey. We're going to talk about Genesis today. The stories of Genesis are some of the most well-known stories in Western culture. Even if you're not a Christian, you know the story of Adam and Eve and Noah and Moses. But they're also some of the most confusing and misunderstood, wouldn't you say? I think so. They they definitely can be. Uh, I remember reading the Old Testament as a kid and trying to make sense out of out of some of these these stories, partly because of the translation and partly because stories were unusual. I would say that there is a fair amount of misunderstanding that goes into the reading of the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. How can a better understanding of where Genesis or the beginning of the Old Testament came from, who wrote it and when, and its relationship to the culture and history of the ancient Near East help us better understand its intended meaning? That's a good question. It's a broad question. I'm not sure how to approach it. Besides to say that, maybe to launch into the story of how, not just Genesis, but the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and and Deuteronomy, how these first five books came to be understood in terms of their production, their composition, their authorship, by readers of the Old Testament. From a very early period, some people say since before even the ink was drying on on the manuscripts, people were were transmitting these stories. They were rewriting them. You know, scribes were recopying them and reading them and interpreting them. As they did so, they they started to notice that some of the stories don't quite fit together in the way that sort of I guess normal storytelling would, whatever that whatever that means. So there were some there were contradictions. There were stories that were repeated twice. There were things like, maybe the first and most apparent example is, we know the story of Adam and Eve, is, as you mentioned, they're created in Genesis chapter 2, where there's this sort of single creature, the sometimes it's translated the earthling, the human, who is split somehow into a male version and a female version. But in Genesis 1, we had already been notified of the creation of humans, male and female, in the famous verses of, you know, humans being created in God's image. And right there plainly says, so God made them in that first story in Genesis chapter one, where, you know, it famously begins in the beginning when God began to create the heavens and the earth, et cetera, et cetera. That begins this sort of seven-day creation cycle. And it's a very ordered, a very structured 
process of creation. So on day one, you have the creation of light and the separation of light and darkness. On day two, you have the creation of the firmament, the dome that separates the waters above the earth from the waters below the earth. So the sky and the seas, in other words. And then on day three, you have the creation of the seas and the dry land and the plants on the dry land. And then on day four, you have the creation of sun, moon, and stars, which parallels day one. On day five, you have the creation of the birds and the fish, which parallels the sky and the sea from day two. And on day six, you have the creation of the land animals and the humans, which parallels the dry land of day three. So it's a very structured, very ordered creation. But then when you get to Genesis chapter two, it seems to start over again at a certain, but with a different order. So it says, before there were any plants out of the dust of the earth, God created this earthling, this human. There's a different order of creation. And then also the names of God that are used in those two chapters are different. And, and so these kinds of discrepancies and consistencies, difficulties. We see that again in the story of Noah too, don't Correct. we? He, they, they tell it and then they start telling it again. First two sets of animals go on and then now they're just the clean animals. Right. Yes, exactly. That is also the case in the flood and in hundreds and hundreds of other stories. Traditionally, it was thought that Moses wrote these first five books of the Bible. When did scholars first start saying, whoa, things are a little more complicated here? Yeah, that's a very good question. And it's a very interesting answer because especially Jewish commentators read the text very, very, very carefully, more carefully than most scholars do today. And they knew the ins and outs of these texts. But their fundamental approach, their fundamental understanding of what the text was, wouldn't allow them to say, well, this is just, this is wrong. This is in inconsistent. Because they assumed that this was divinely given by God in sort of perfection. And so anything that seemed to be an inconsistency was actually a call to more careful interpretation, was actually God trying to teach you something. There are a few medieval Jewish commentators who hinted that there might be something else going on. So famously, there's this verse in Genesis chapter 12, verse 6, that says the Canaanites were then in the land. It's talking about Abraham going into the promised land. And the narrator reminds the audience that, you know, back then when Abraham was headed toward the promised land, you have to remember that Canaanites were then in the land. And this Jewish commentator sort of hinted that behind this is a really great secret and you should keep quiet about it if you know it. And that was, of course, that Moses couldn't have written that verse because it presumes that the audience is one that doesn't remember the Canaanites being in the land. And so the author has to remind the audience that, you know, back then, Canaanites used to live here. Well, if it was Moses who wrote it, Moses would have spoken in the present and he wouldn't have had to clue his audience in that way. Not just that, but there are others. There's, of course, the death of Moses that happens at the end of Deuteronomy. And I've heard that explained away. They're like, oh, he wrote all of it, except for that line. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Yeah, um, yeah, that was written by, by Joshua or somebody, yes. right? Yeah, so those kinds of things were noticed, but it really wasn't until the Enlightenment when things began to change theologically. Sort of you had the, the idea that we could read this text as a human production and not as something that was 
set apart. It was composed by humans in the way that all texts were composed by humans. And so these now these discrepancies, uh, people started to look at them differently. Hobbes famously said Moses didn't write the books of Moses any more than Judges wrote the book of Judges or Ruth wrote the book of Ruth, right? That is really a revelation to some people. They don't realize the method of writing that the ancient Jewish people used. Can you explain that, how they would attribute it to a prophet? And this is not pseudepigrapha. This is something different. Right. We can't speak of the first five books in any case as pseudepigrapha because they never claim to be written by anybody. It's not false attribution. The text itself doesn't say Moses wrote this. At most, Moses gives a Torah, an instruction, a set of instructions, a set of laws, which seems to refer to the the block of laws in the middle of Deuteronomy. But yeah, I think it is a revelation to a lot of people because that's sort of the idea that, the, yeah, that their tradition handed down. I think Latter-day Saints have a particularly interesting challenge, I guess, when it comes to this authorship because of the Joseph Smith translation, which puts Moses in the sort of the driver's seat in the what's now in the Pearl of Great Price, the expansion of Genesis in the Joseph Smith translation of Genesis. So that maybe creates some thorny problems. Even there, there's a kind of implicit, there's a nod to these kinds of problems. So in the transition between the first creation story and the second creation story, there is this notice that that first creation story was spiritual and the second one was physical, which is a very, very old way of interpreting. Philo, who was a first century Jewish interpreter, made that same claim that they're, you know, in recognizing these two creation stories that don't seem to fit together, he said, well, one of them is this sort of, in, in, a, in a neoplatonic kind of way, one of them was a theoretical creation and, this, and the, the second was the physical realization of that plan, that blueprint. So if Philo is dealing with this, they're struggling with these two stories a long, long time ago. This is not something that just we're dealing with right now. Correct. Sometimes scholars get a sort of bad rep when it comes to what they do with the text here, because, you know, sometimes claimed by people of faith that scholars just hate the text. They, they hate the idea that, that God could reveal something, that he could uh, inspire people to write things that, that they didn't know about, and that we just want to sort of tear down faith. But that's, that's kind of, couldn't be farther from the truth. Most of the scholars that I know came to the study of the Bible from a position of faith. And then when they encounter the text, a lot of their ideas need to change. But I don't think it's always the case that those ideas that change need necessarily to be a, a real rend in the fabric of faith, right? They require different kinds of thinking, probably, and they require some discomfort, I think. It's a challenge that we have to deal with if we're going to take the text seriously. I ask my classes, who takes the text more seriously? The person who harmonizes stories to get them to say things that they don't say in order to preserve a kind of idea of inerrancy, or the person who lets the text say what they say, which they might be contradictory. I've actually found a lot of power in that, in letting the text be contradictory, letting them approach issues, sometimes fundamental issues like the nature of God, from different angles and from completely different vantages. Or let them be human productions. Yes. Yeah. Let them be humans who are trying to work out their own faith and their own relationship to the divine. What was happening in 19th century Germany 
amongst the biblical scholars. A lot of these inconsistencies that started to pile up, people throughout the 17th and 18th centuries began to sort of dislodge the notion that these were authored by Moses and that they are completely inerrant or completely free of inconsistencies. Then the task became, how do we understand these inconsistencies as sort of human documents? And as they looked at them and as they really got into the details and began to sort of separate these stories, they noticed that a lot of the stories lined up with each other once you pulled them apart. Well, I I should emphasize, first of all, that the divisions in the stories that were made were made because of problems that arose in the text, narrative problems where you have two ideas competing for the same narrative space. So just like I mentioned with creation, that sees humans being created before plants and another story that where humans are created after plants. Those two things are competing for the same narrative space and they, they can't be reconciled very easily. So they probably belong to two different stories. When you separate the hundreds of examples of things competing for the same narrative space, scholars in the 19th century, especially Julius Wellhausen, who was born the year Joseph Smith died in, um, in 1844, Julius Wellhausen is the one who put this this study on a new um, footing. And what he wanted to do was he he was interested in writing the history of Israel. But before he could write the history of Israel, he had to sort out what was going on in, in these texts. And so he undertook this study. And he is one of the most brilliant minds of modern biblical scholarship. He separated out four documents. And he relied on the on the work of others, uh, of course. But he separated out these four documents that are known as J, E, D, and P after one of their features. So J is the it's called J because the the Yahwist the, in German it's spelled with a J because this text uses the name Yahweh for God from the very beginning. So it's called J, and then E is the the Elohist um, E. At the beginning, it uh, uses the name Elohim for um, for God. P, for priestly source, P also begins by using the name um, Elohim. And then D, for the Deuteronomist, who um, basically wrote the book of Deuteronomy. There's a bunch of nuance in there, but it's basically Deuteronomy. As they lined up these narratives that they had separated, they saw that these are basically four intact documents that tell the same basic story. The rise of Israel, the, the patriarchs, the rise of Israel, descent into Egypt, emergence from Egypt, and then sort of entry or almost entry into the promised land. And then the theory was that these four documents, this is why it's called the documentary hypothesis, that these four documents were then combined at a later stage by somebody who wanted, to, who wanted these stories to be one grand narrative. We have a helpful way of thinking about this when we look to the Gospels, because the Gospels are very similar in that they tell the same basic story of the ministry and death of Jesus, and they tell it in similar ways, but they don't always agree with each other. And they're all four authoritative and sort of sitting in the in the canon, even though they have different ways of understanding Jesus, different ways of approaching who Jesus was and what he meant and what his his mission was and things like that. In the second century, people tried to put together the Gospels into one grand narrative. And that's what we think happened with the first five books of the Bible. So that's what became known as the documentary hypothesis. 
I think it's hard. Well, it's always been hard for me since I read about this. They call these people who combined these documents together redactors. Yeah. I always wondered why they didn't harmonize and say, let's pitch this, let's pitch this. Could come from my training as an editor, but I'm like, okay, this one's better. But they wanted them all to be preserved. And I've heard it's because of their deep respect for history. Yeah, I think that's part of it. I I mean, I think the basic idea is that just like the four Gospels, if somebody now were taking the four Gospels and, and putting them together, a devout Christian generally wouldn't feel comfortable tossing the prologue of John, for example, because it didn't fit with the birth narrative of, of Matthew. You would have to make decisions about what to get rid of. And I think by the time that these four documents were being put together, they had achieved a kind of authoritative status such that the compiler didn't feel at liberty to just throw away, even if... so. And, and he didn't want to be the judge of who was right, too. He wanted to say, this is a valid thought, this is a valid view of it, and this is a valid view as well, maybe? Correct. I I, I think so. And, and probably the compiler also... I mean, I imagine the compiler also thought that there were ways of reconciling these, right? And we see that in um, in rabbinic interpretation, that you know, you can be creative with the way that you read the text and come up with, uh, with reasons and and sort of explanations for for why, for example, in Genesis thirty seven, Joseph seems to get sold twice into Egypt. This is one of those cases where there's two different events competing for the same narrative narrative space. Where in one case it's the Ishmaelites who sell him into Egypt, and in another case it's the Midianites who sell him into Egypt. So there are there are a lot of interpretive attempts to explain, well, maybe the Ishmaelites are the same as the Midianites, and the, the author was just using two different terms for the same group. So I think probably the, comp- the compiler felt like he, it was probably he, could put these things together without, you know, and, and we do seem to have evidence that he changed as little as possible when, when there were really, like, when you couldn't have one person in two places at the same time. Um, he'd have to change a word here and there, but not, not big swaths. You think there was one redactor or two or three? I mean, it seems like a big job. Yeah, so back to the question of of redaction. The redactor became a sort of um, what my eighth grade math teacher used to call a fudge factor, a sort of number that you would throw in to get the equation to work. When it became difficult to separate sources along the sort of standard lines, scholars would say, well, there was a redactor who inserted a bunch of his own material in between the documents. That actually led, there's this kind of proliferation of redactors. I mean, you're right to be confused by the number of redactors. So that actually contributed to a lot of the growing dissatisfaction, especially in Europe, with the documentary hypothesis that if we can't solve these problems, maybe the whole theory is suspect. Most scholars today, most scholars of Pentateuch today, admit that there's there's at least one document, P, right, the, the priestly source. And then beyond that, there are various sort of hands at work. There is a bewildering variety of publications about how many of these hands there were and what they're responsible for. I myself am still convinced by the revival, they call it the neo-documentarian school. Neo-documentarian is just people who are sort of rehabilitating the documentary hypothesis in the last decade or so. The great book actually to, to consult on this is uh, Joel Baden. It's a book called The Composition of the Pentateuch, Renewing the Documentary Hypothesis, where Baden tries to 
sort of do away with some of the problematic assumptions and practices, I guess, of the and methods, I guess, of the classic documentary hypothesis. I'm a kind of a minimalist when it comes to a redactor. There were substantially four documents, not a lot of redactional activity. The, what looks like redactional activity, to me, I think is probably the result of the author of the document incorporating different sources. But then the, the person that puts the, the four documents together actually doesn't introduce a lot of his own material. The scholarly consensus would be that the documentary hypothesis is the best explanation of how we got the first five books of the Bible. But the hypothesis cannot answer questions about the origin of the individual documents or about the historicity of the events themselves. Would you agree to that? Correct. The documentary hypothesis, well, first of all, I should say that uh, I don't think many people would say that it is the consensus now. It was the consensus for a long time, but starting in the 70s, there were some other ideas that, that, that sort of came into the field that destabilized the documentary hypothesis. And some people assume that, that scholars have abandoned the idea that there were these original documents that then were tampered with. But that's actually not the case. It's, these other theories are even more complex than the documentary hypothesis was, and they don't rehabilitate the idea that Moses was the author. To the second part of your question, the question as to whether the documentary hypothesis makes a claim about the historical origins of the text, that, that's correct. That properly speaking, the documentary hypothesis is just concerned with the penultimate stage of the literary production. So what the documents looked like right before they got combined. It definitely helps us to answer historical questions. And internal evidence in the text continues to point toward the production of these texts sometime between 1,000 and 500. Some people say even later BC. And so the document hypothesis it is a tool for isolating these documents so that then we can try to make sense of them. And when we isolate them, we see really interesting things emerging. So each of these texts had a different, a slightly different idea of sort of how God interacted with people. Jay is the the, the God that um, that gets his hands dirty, as it were. He's the one who sort of forms Adam, you know, from the clay. He's kind of a, a, a potter and he's a gardener and he's a gentleman strolling through his garden in the cool breeze of the day. Whereas P, you know, P's God is much more transcendent, much more in, in sort of in control. He speaks and things come into being. He hardens Pharaoh's heart on purpose you know, things like that. So these documents exhibit a different understanding of things as fundamental as who God is and how he engages with his children so, um, or with his, with his people. So it helps us to, to get to historical questions, but it's not itself uh, a means to a historical end. It can talk about the relative position of the documents, the relative composition of the documents, only insofar as the documents quote each other. J, which is Genesis 2 and 3, the, the Adam and Eve creation story, and P, which is Genesis 1, people are still debating whether J and P knew each other, whether P is a revision of J. But they don't, I mean, they have some of the same themes, but they don't quote each other. P doesn't quote J. So we can't really be sure. You know, we have to go to sort of other means to answer that question. But D, Deuteronomy, D quotes J and E. And so we have to say then D was written after J and E. Otherwise, it would be really strange. 
those are the kinds of basic, uh, I guess, his relative historical questions that the document hypothesis can can help with. But we have to use other techniques to think about when these documents were written and why. I love what you said about it showing you the kind of God with each different document. Because I think that the Old Testament is essentially showing you the Israelites' relationship with their God rather than scientific history. So let's throw into this soup other ways of analyzing this Genesis. So Genesis 1 through 11, when you're looking at that beyond the documents, you also look at where Israel was living at that time. So you said these documents were written between 500 and 1000 BC. So what types of things besides the attitudes of the different people writing these documents was affecting the stories and their surrounding culture? Yeah, that's a really good question. We try to answer that circumstantially. It's a careful dance that we have to do, I think, because we have to guess at the purposes of the author. And we have to remember that these are authors. These are people who have the freedom to make things up, right, if they if they want to. They apparently, you know, invented speeches, right? We Almost about, nobody thinks there was a court sort of recorder yeah. dictating, you know, taking How dictation. About the desire to borrow from your neighbor or to make your God seem better in a similar story, like in Numa Elish or the legend of Gilgamesh. Yeah. Let's make a story just like that, only let's make our God better. There is a, a fair amount of that. Th- that is the author's of these individual documents and stories mm-hmm. are pulling from a variety of sources. And like you said, there is evidence that there is borrowing from the Epic of Gilgamesh and the Code of Hammurabi. And, but never is it just a simple borrowing, right? It's, it's sort of importing some of these ideas and texts and words into an Israelite cultural milieu that makes it meaningful for Israelites. Like in, in Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy, you have, uniquely, you have laws about what kings are supposed to do. Now, in the context of Moses, they, of course, don't have kings. They're not sort of living under a monarchy. In the framework of the story, sort of Moses is projecting into the, into the future. But in terms of when this story is being written, it's being written because of things that are happening in the Israelite cultural context. So they're telling a story that's set in the past, but it's really probably about about their present and about their anxieties um, about how does this, you know, how does how does kingship work in Israelite society? When we look at these documents, we look at what we can tell about their contemporary concerns. We find efforts to create a sort of national identity. We find efforts to make meaning, to shore up institutions, to sort of knock down other institutions, to sort of gain a historical standing sort of for your yourself or your people or your your tribe and yeah we can we can see that that happening in these sources and for me that's the real payoff of looking at the text this way is that i feel like i can identify more with people who are telling these stories in a way that shows they're trying to make sense of something they're trying to make sense of their own identity. Israelites recognize that they weren't first on the scene. So how do they explain how they came into existence sort of later than the Mesopotamians or the Egyptians, right? And you, you see them, them working the, this out and different authors work it out in different ways. 
They tell different stories for different purposes. And that to me is the most, um, the most interesting and maybe even, if I could say, I guess, inspiring aspects of this kind of study is that you get a chance to see people working this out. And then all of these end up in the same place, right? They end up in the case of the first five books, they end up in the same sort of section of the Bible in it, in one story. So there are all of these different perspectives lumped into one. To me, that's a little bit comforting because that's what we see in society, in our, you know, society of faith and in our uh, political and, um, you know, ge geographic um, society as well. So, so I see that I feel like there's something familiar about that in those stories. That's a benefit to approaching our biblical studies from a historical critical approach. I think there's some challenges to that as well. If you're used to, for lack of a better term, a plain reading of the scriptures, just taking the words maybe at face value, maybe as historical, what kind of challenge does historical criticism pose to believers as they struggle to reconcile the conclusions of these scholarly endeavors with a religious reading of the text or a plain reading? Well, I mean, it always depends on your starting point. If the sort of basis of your faith is that these texts were dictated by God to somebody who wrote them down faithfully, and then you encounter evidence that suggests that not the case, or that there were multiple authors with different perspectives that suggest that maybe we have to rethink what we think God is doing here. Or if you if you're you know immediately convinced that it's it's not an all sort of not at all sort of an act of inspiration, then yeah, it's it's going to be a challenge. Many people uh, frame it that way. Many, you know, I have known many people who have had crises of faith because of the dissonance between what they felt that their faith tradition was telling them versus what they were reading, you know, with, with their own eyes and come sort of coming to their own conclusions about. I think part of that challenge is letting go a little bit of the sort of uh, hope that these texts are sort of evidence of the literal words of God, right? And, and shifting to something that, you know, makes more sense of the text but is maybe a little bit less, well, I guess you have to say it's, it's a little bit less reliable, right? It's a little bit more human. And when it's a little bit more human, can we trust it as much as we did when we thought it was sort of purely God? For me, I feel like my adult life has been a, a sort of long journey of trying to make sense out of all of this, right? Out of relationship to the divine, out of what these texts mean, you know, for me. And when I see myself trying to make sense of it, and then I look in these texts and see other people trying to make sense of it, then, then I feel like there's some kind of, that I have, so there's some kind of camaraderie there. Thank you, Corey. This has been a fascinating discussion. You've given us tons to think about as we start this year of gospel doctrine study on Old Testament, and we delve into our study of Moses and Genesis. In conclusion, in five sentences or less, is there something you would like to say to listeners about the documentary hypothesis and how it can enhance our study of the first five books of the Bible? I would say a good place to start would be the book that I mentioned by Joel Baden. It's very lucidly written and clearly presented. I guess I would say, too, that when you look at the text this way, the, it starts to make a lot more sense. The texts seem to be a lot more coherent 
for me, it solved a lot of the problems that I had when I was before I started graduate study, when I was trying to to make sense of this very old and very complex book. And it's not the case for everybody, but it was the case for me that when I began to study and look at it this way, it opened new possibilities for my own, through thinking about my own self in relation to the divine. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Be sure to check out ldsperspectives.com to subscribe, catch up on past episodes, download transcripts, and find show notes. LDS Perspectives podcast is not affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed represent the views of the guests or the podcasters alone. While the ideas presented may vary from traditional understandings or teachings, they in no way reflect criticism of LDS church leaders, policies, or practices.